Blog Talk Radio. Guest on board, and I am so, so excited to talk with him. Uh, his name is Simon Napier Bell, and he is the longtime manager of the late great George Michael, and also the director of a brand new documentary film, The Real George Michael, that was released just a few days ago, June 25th, which would have been George's 60th birthday, available on Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, Plex, Zumo in the U.S. and Canada. It's available all over the world. And I tell you, oh, Simon, as I said, it's such a longtime fan. I don't even trust people if they weren't fans of George Michael's music. I don't think I trust them at all. <laughs> I really don't. I feel funky when you meet somebody. Yes. You're a fan of George Michael. <laughs> yes. And if not, next. <laughs> well, let's just jump in here. Um, as a longtime manager, obviously you knew him very well, but as you delved into his life, were there aspects of his life that surprised you? I, I guess not, because, you know, I, I, I was always around him, always watching, always finding out what was going on. Um, not surprised, because most of the things which surprise most people about him uh, are common to really most artists. I mean, all, all the problems and accidents and I think his philanthropy was very surprising. I mean, there was a lot of that I didn't know, because he did it very privately. He would give money to people and causes without telling anyone. That was a condition. You had a that you must have played, I gave it. And the other thing that surprised me in an extraordinary way, um, he recorded songs in the studio. So although when I managed him, I went to the studio, I never realized it. In his entire life, he never wrote the words of the song down. He kept them all in his head. But oh. so he would say, I'm writing songs, but he, he was thinking songs. And somehow he picked them there. Can you imagine waking up in the morning and, and planning, going off to do your day's work and you hadn't written down any notes? You had to think, we think it all the time out of your head. Out of your head. And um, that's how he sang his song, break out of his head. It was amazing. I mean, that's just a test to his musical genius. I can't even remember going to the market. I need a grocery list. Come on. Ooh. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's fantastic, isn't it? Very you know, And you can't say the song, you know, it, it isn't that the songs weren't written. You can't have been thinking of the words, but he, he, he was able to file them away and just pull them out like that. Very, very strange mind and, and clever, but really, really amazing. <laughs> well, now, who was the person George Michael and the persona George Michael, how many miles apart were these two individuals? Right? Oh, this is something nearly every artist has, especially when they start. They get up on stage, they create a persona, they see what the public likes, and then they play to that, they do that more, the other thing that. And then they come off stage and they suddenly realize that they've been acting, they've created this person. And then the People come and meet them and talk to them, and the press are talking immediately, and they want to talk to the person who's just on stage, and then the person off stage isn't like that. And then they have a conflict, and it goes on sometimes for their whole life, and sometimes in just a year or two, they manage to resolve it and find bits of both personalities they combine into one and fit themselves to being that person. George always had this conflict, I and mean, he, he really couldn't quite work out what he was. At the very beginning, of course, he was a stage personality. He was part of Wham, and then he went on to do Faith, which is very much nothing for himself. And he, he suffered from that, having to try to come out of Faith's personality. 
then he went too far the other way. That he he said this is the real me, you know, and then he found that that wasn't quite what was needed on stage. I think perhaps he never really completely solved that, and that one of the conflicts which led him to worry and be pressured about taking drugs and drinks and things. I there is a. Of course, we don't want to give away too much, but we want everybody to see, again, the documentary is The Real George Michael, directed by my guest right here as I speak to him, Simon Napier-Bell. Um, okay. There is a quote where George is saying in, the, in your film, quote, I haven't been happy with fame since I was 22. Was it really that long that he wasn't happy with being famous? That's a long time. I it, it started with faith. Uh, when he was with Wack, you know, uh, he was always, most artists have a sort of a, a, a angst you know, they're easy bipolar and they have ups and downs. But um, they learned to cope with it and, and he enjoyed being that way. And when he was with Wack, you know, you could see, you can just see from the pictures, he was carefree. There was still an element of him which was like a normal teenager having fun and being carefree. And then after that, you hardly ever see that carefreeness in him. He has happy moments, obviously, when he has big success or when he meets someone, his boyfriend. Mm -hmm. But uh, that carefreeness is gone. And I think that's what he meant. And I thought it went more and more and more. Um, as you, I mean, that's with all of us in a way. Okay. We become more knowing. And uh, we may be happy, but we're not less than deliberately happy teenage way. But I think it, he got more and more entangled with the problems of fame. No privacy. He couldn't. He never knew who really was a friend and who was his friend because he was George Michael because he was rich. Um, and I, yes, it got worse and worse. And it definitely started when he left Wham. When he was with Wham, it was George and Andrew, and Andrew was a big support. When he went on, when he got on stage every night, um, when you're a big star, when you come off stage, you're, you're pretty much locked away in a dressing room or in a hotel room, and it's just two of you, and you're joking. It's fun. But if you're completely alone, it's not the misery. And when he did the face tour, he had two years of being completely alone, 24 hours a day, other than an hour and a half of stage every night. Was there ever any jealousy between he and Andrew during the Wham years? No, never, never, never. It was extraordinary. The image of Wham really came from Andrew, not from George. It, you know, it was the lad around town, and George acted, you know, the second lad about town. Uh, and they created this wonderful image, and then George created the music. So it was a 50-50 partnership. They were really happy together. Uh, they chatted and laughed. And they, you know, one of the annoying things about being with them is he wanted to talk to them, and they were always talking to each other and laughing and joking. And it's very difficult to make stop and listen for a minute and be serious. And if you listen for a minute, then they made a joke about what you said. They, they really had a lot of fun together. And as George began to emerge as the person who wanted to go solo and creating all the music, Andrew was so graceful. He just dropped aside and said, look, that's what you are, and I've got to let you do it, and I'm really happy that you're doing it. And he was genuinely happy. There was, there was no jealousy at all. Well, after George went on to, of course, have this phenomenally successful solo career, was there ever a time that the two of them ever talked about maybe having a reunion tour together as Wham or, or what? I, I think I don't think they talked. The press and everybody else talked. And then when George and Andrew met, they said, "What do you think?" And of course, they both looked at each other and said, "No, I mean, you, you move on, and you're not what you were, uh, good or bad. It may be better, it may be worse, but you're not what you were." And reunionizing is that word? Is that a word? Mm -hmm. Reuniting yeah. <laughs> is um, it, it just doesn't feel right. 
But they did play together a couple of times. When when George did Wham in Rio at the Fuse Festival, um, Andrew came along and sang a few songs with them on stage, and it was a very, very happy event. But, you know, George had moved on. He was doing different types of material. And to put Wham together again would have only been for a big charity or something. It wouldn't have been a serious reunite, re, reunitedness. <laughs> I can't get that word right today. It's okay. <laughs> but it wouldn't have been a, a, a serious putting together of Wham again. It would have just been... Uh, for one big event, and they probably did think about it a few times in relation to a charity or something. George Michael's career and is him by himself or whether it's with Wham, just such a huge body of work and success. How did you decide on which stories and which people that you would feature with a man with such a long, extraordinary career? That must have been a bit of a challenge for you as a director. So many people, and as you saw, we got a lot of big stars like Stevie Wonder and Rufus Wainwright. Mm-hmm. But uh, my my thought was, who uh, who knew him really well as a result of working with him? And that was nearly everybody, because nearly everybody who worked with George never forgot it. And nearly everybody said that was the best thing they ever did in their career. There was something about George which made it feel really worthwhile. But the other thing is, who might have some insights which we haven't already heard? It's so good hearing the same story for one person after another. You know, people say, why didn't you have all the family? Well, all the family are pretty much going to tell the same story as each other of all the certain types of friends are. So we tried to get very different people, a record producer, a video producer, an artist like George or Rufus, um, Stephen Fry, who was the head of the charity, to whom George gave so many royalties. Um, different, different perspectives. And as a result, that's why we're getting this continuous flow of different, different looks at George. And, I think it works really well because you see all these different sides of George, and yet they all seem to tell the same story um, of a very troubled person, a brilliant songwriter, and a wonderfully generous person. Did he ever seek help for his depression and you know just issues like a lot of celebrities? He had, he had, yes, he had a doctor who I introduced him to right at the beginning. When he was only 19 years old and the first wham thought he got bronchitis, I took him to my doctor, who was one of the very few doctors in the UK who was both a medical doctor and a practical psychiatrist, so he was both things. And he went for his bronchitis and it made better and went back on tour. Uh, and then he never left the doctor for um, psychiatric treatment, just like, you know, for, for talking and, and discussing problems. And, excuse me, uh, and Really, I think it was when this doctor, Dr. Cooper, when he died in 2012, I think that's when George began to deteriorate a lot because he'd relied on this person for 30 years to be able to go and talk mm-hmm. any time there was a problem or something went wrong. When he was arrested in the toilet in Los Angeles, the very first thing, he went home and he called Dr. Cooper. And Dr. Cooper talked him to do, you've got to own this and go out, go out to dinner. You know, that, he, that was where the advice teacher came from. And uh, he found it very difficult with that went. Even after George publicly and proudly revealed his true sexuality, he that was a burden, obviously, lifted off of his shoulders. But he still seemed to be unhappy. Was was am I seeing this correctly, or or what was the problem then with why he was still unhappy? You know, it's very difficult. You know, he was an artist. You can say that artists are unhappy or unhappiness makes artists, but mm-hmm. no, art, and it's not just music, but very much with musical artists, 
the, the art or the performance or the song, they are a symptom of mental bad health. I mean, they, it's an awful thing to have to accept that, that we, the artists we love are not mentally healthy because that's what, why they produce the art. And he was quite an extreme case. I mean, Van Gogh might have been as a painter and various other people. And um, it was just innate unhappiness, which he couldn't put a finger on. He didn't know quite why he had this lingering inside him. But that caused him to have to write and perform. So the good came from the bad. And they're very difficult to separate in most artists. Let's talk about his, his family here. Sorry. Sure, no problem. Okay, go uh, His is his father, is he still alive? I know his, his mom, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. But is his dad still alive? Yeah, his dad's still alive. And he's a delightful man. I mean, he's suffered terribly. I mean, George died and then his sister died. And his father, he's very, one, of, one of those people who just decides that look, if I'm still alive, I should be grateful for it. And I just have to try and have a nice life. And he's, he's remarried. Mm-hmm. And he's relatively happy, I'm sure, full of morose memories. Um, but he's a very, very nice man. But as you know, George blamed him um, for all the problems in his youth. But then you're blaming your father for the success you had because this happens with so many artists. They, it, it's a bad relationship with the father which drives them to become artists. And then later on, they have to look at it and say, well, I need to thank my father because I love being an artist. And if he'd been nice to me, I may not have been. Complicated situation, isn't it? Uh, very much. I mean, my, Michael Jackson, as we all know, is very similar about his dad and such. It's just mm. quite interesting. Very interesting. Well, now, didn't he have uh, two sisters? I know one passed away. What about the, the other one? Oh, she's still alive, and she's a psychiatrist, friend, you know. No. Um, I, I think um, it, it runs in the family. Um, it's very common, as you know, that people who, who have and find they do have mental problems become psychiatrists, and the best way to, to solve them and, and sort yourself out and, and, and make make use of what is initially seems to be a bad trait, and you turn it into a very, very good trait. Uh, she's a fabulous woman, and uh, she really helps people, and <laughs> she's the one who's come through it most successfully. Um, Yoda, her name is very pleasant. And uh, then, unfortunately, the other sister died as well. So um, it's, it's a, a grief stricken family as well as being a very successful family. What, uh, what's been their impression of your film? Um, everybody liked it. You know, they, 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 when I started making it, they didn't want to see it. We don't need another film about yours. We've done enough. No, no, please don't. We don't want you talking to everybody. And they were really against it. But, you know, when it was finished and they saw it and, and they saw the reaction that everybody had to it, the fans in particular, they all came around to saying, yes, this is really a fantastic film about it. So it's being successful in, in all sorts of ways, first winning the family around to, to seeing you can make a very good film about George and reveal the problems without in any way denigrating him. I thought, I think they worried that if you show the problems, the personal problems he had, it's also going to show him in a bad light. But I think... I think I managed to do the opposite. I, I'm making look in a very good light. I think you did a fantastic job, and there was just so much about George that I didn't know. I thought I, you know, knew so much as a longtime fan, but no, I did not. I did not. Well, let's do a quick roll call on where are they now. Uh, you, we talked about the sisters, the father, Andrew, of course. Where Where is his longtime partner, Kenny, Kenny Goss? Uh, Kenny is in Texas. He runs an extremely successful art gallery, which is the, the Goss Michael Foundation. 
okay. uh, which they started together, which is, which is um, uh, it's basically a charitable organization dealing in art. So he uses art to raise huge amounts of money. Uh, fabulous gallery. I went down and interviewed for the film there and really enjoyed meeting him and, the, and seeing that gallery. Um, so he's around and doing quite a bit of publicity and doing well. Mm-hmm. Doing well for himself, but doing well for himself means raising money for charity. That's what he likes to do. But he's the focal point in the art world, which is great. His dad was around and remarried and, you know, trying to make a, he's an elderly man now, or what's as old as me. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, tried to make himself happy and, and, uh, sister, but so there's a practicing psychiatrist. Andrew is delightful. I, I had dinner with Andrew. I, I live in Thailand. Andrew came out to Thailand a few weeks ago to brush up on his cycling. He does a lot of charity cycling events. He cycles 3,000 miles around Europe, that sort of thing. Oh, and he came out to brush up on his fitness, rolling up and down hills in his standby. Oh, and we had a lovely dinner by the river in Bangkok and discussed all this. Um, but he's around and um, pretty happy. Um, who else is that? Oh, the record producer, Chris Porter. Yeah. He's, he's, he's really successful record producer now. Mm-hmm. What about his uh, George's last partner? It's Fadi Fadi. Yeah, pronouncing it correctly. Fadi went off the rails a bit. I, I was always a bit sorry for Fadi because everyone hated him, uh, but I don't think he was really deserved to be hated. He was just oh, he uh, he went off the rails. I mean, it's not great, is it, to wake up in the morning and go and see your partner and find yeah. him unconscious and then realize he's dead. It's it's um, mm-hmm. it concerned everybody a bit a bit peculiar. And Fadi. Um, Felt hard done by because nobody much liked him and got pushed aside. And I mean, to some degree, they were right because he was a, it was a bit of a pain. But, um, I don't know what he's doing now. He, up to a couple of years ago, he would occasionally write a piece for the press and, and say everything was wonderful or everything was terrible. Up and down, just like George, really. Now, I understand that George had, uh, a godson or godchildren. Is that correct? What? A godson. Is that correct? Oh, he has godchildren, yes. Um, I think several. Um, Yeah, I mean, when, you know, a lot of his best friends had children and he became godfather to them. There was one man, only one I know of, Gary Farrow, who was the Wham promoter. He was the person who plugged the record at radio and they became lifelong friends. They were great friends throughout George's life. And Gary went on doing promotion and publicity for him for a long time. Um, and, um, yes, uh, George is godfather for his son. True. That's so sweet. I think uh, I really enjoyed about all of the, the philanthropy, the secret philanthropy that George did uh, for the LGBT community, the HIV AIDS charity fundraisers, and just so many. Uh, the one, you know, the smaller stories about the lady that uh, the waitress that uh, he donated money to help her pay for nursing school, and another lady with fertility treatment. These little smaller stories, just just so kind. He was such a kind person. Oh my goodness. He, he, he would, he would be sitting at home a little bit bored and he watched television and a talk show or the morning television or something. And somebody would come on and they'd say, oh, they're having a problem. It sounds small to most people, but my teeth are broken. I can't afford new teeth. Or, you know, I, I got, I have this done or the doctor says my eyes need testing and I haven't got the money. And he'd get straight on the phone and say, please don't use my name, but here's the money. Give, give that person what they need. He'd do that every single day. It's absolutely wonderful. Oh, my goodness. Just, again, just kind, talented, 
drop dead handsome, just all of these things. He just <laughs> had it all, had it all. Well, as we wrap this up, um, what do you think George would like for his legacy to be remembered as? Of course, his music, but what do you think overall? You know, the only thing he ever said, and he said it over and over and over again, my songs. He said, I don't want to be remembered as a pop star. I don't certainly don't want to be remembered as a philanthropist. He didn't even want people to know he was saying that. He doesn't want to be remembered for crashing his car into, into easy snacks. But he just wanted to be remembered for his songs. And in the end, I think that's what he will be remembered for. Because, you know, despite the film and all these other things, one does forget the person and the story and what you're left with is the song. And there they are. I mean, look, last Christmas, every year, every, every yeah. shopping centre in the world is playing a song. Uh, we all know Taylor Swift, but um, the songs are what survived, and that's what he wanted. So, in a way, he's going to have what he wanted. To further speak of songs, what is one or two of your personal favourite George Michael songs? You know, I absolutely love the song, You Have Been Loved. I, I, I think that's my favourite song. But um, it's not most people's, because it's, it's not such an obvious pop song with verse and chorus. But that's my favourite. And, you know, it's impossible not to like Last Christmas, which I just mentioned. You know, you, you, when you're going on a stop to Christmas, and all these songs come on, and you hear Maria Carey yet again, and I don't know about you, but I go, oh, God. <laughs> and that's because the song is so obviously written to be a commercial Christmas song. What you're hearing is all the usual, you know, I want Christmas and uh, sort of jingle belly lyrics. And then on comes last Christmas, and you're hearing lyrics which could easily not be a Christmas song. I mean, they're a very sort of angst-ridden um, teenage love song. And to work that into a Christmas situation was so clever. Um, and I think that's the song which appeals to me most. Very simple taste, isn't it? To find that's my favourite song. Um, but there are at least a dozen others I love. I mean, Last Love is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. And um, look, all the wild songs. I was there right at the beginning of all of them. Freedom and I'm Your Man. Impossible not to love them. Oh, yeah. A question I should have asked you at the very top of the interview. How did you first meet George and Andrew? <laughs> well, I, I had a partner. I, I met my partner, a very strange way. I just got a knock on the door one day, and a man went to the door, and there was a man who said, my name is Jazz Summers, and I'm a manager, and you're a manager, and I think we should work together. And I said, why? He said, because I've got lots of energy, and I haven't achieved everything you've achieved, but I can help you achieve it. And I don't know. I just thought I wanted to send him away. But we went and had lunch, and at the end of the lunch, we got to like each other. So we said, let's go and find an act we can manage together. But we don't want an act which is absolutely at the beginning. We don't want to waste two years trying an act out and seeing if we can get the first hit Let's find an act which has got one or two first hits and then make them the biggest act in the world. And we went through all the acts in the UK at that time, which possibly could fit the bill. There was Culture Club and Eurythmics, both of which had their first hit in the UK but weren't yet big in America. And then we got to Wham!, and we knew at once that was the one. We'd both seen them on their first top of the box performance. They were absolutely brilliant. And we just said, that's it. Let's go and find them. Let's talk to them. Let's persuade them. And we did. Uh, we, we found out who the music publishers were, and we talked to them. We happened to know them quite well. And they introduced us, and George and Andrew came around to my house. We had a first meeting, um, got on incredibly well. Then went to dinner with them, where George said, 
you've got one year to make it the biggest group in the world. And I just burst out laughing. I said, to make you the biggest group in the world, it, it, you have to be the biggest group in America because that's 60% of the world market. No one's ever broken America under three years, even the Beatles took four years. Um, it can't be done in a year. He said, well, a bit arrogant. He said, well, you've got a year. So I had this idea to make them uh, the first act ever to play in communist China. I think it would be on the news and the newspapers around the world. And that would hurry things up. And so I said, maybe we can break you in communist time and make you the first act ever to play there. George said, yeah, okay, fix that. <laughs> I had then had that challenge. But it really was them playing in, uh, in Beijing. And it was on CBS, NBC, ABC News 24-7 on the hour every hour. It, that week was the week which took them from being a little bit known in America to being absolutely the biggest thing. And three weeks later, we were playing the stadium tour. And that whole China uh, tour, by the way, is mentioned in the, was shown in the film. But that must have been a logistical nightmare planning a tour like that in China back then. Yeah, it wasn't a tour. It was only two dates. But I got it cost nearly a million dollars to put on. There was not even fusoir in China. We had to hire a 747 to take every last bit of equipment. And we had to think ahead. You had to literally think, what if somebody fell over and they need a Band-Aid? There's not even any Band-Aids, you know. Uh, we're so used to everything we have at home. Um, it's amazing to find it isn't somewhere else. And so, literally, uh, we took a 747 of the office equipment, the sound equipment, the lighting equipment, and then all the peripheral things that you could ever want on a tour. Um, huge, huge uh, logistics. And we had our tour manager, who was probably the best tour manager in Britain, and to help out, we got a second tour. We, we hired Michael Jackson's tour manager, who is the best tour manager in America. So we went there with two of the top tour managers in the world, just for two gigs. Um, an extraordinary extravagance, and yet that was what broke them in America. So all worthwhile. I keep saying this is my last question. This really is my last question. I'm just being super. <laughs> I could talk to you all day, Simon. Okay. You're welcome. What, what, what was in George Michael's writer? Um, very little. Really? Very little. He, he wasn't, he, he wasn't a pink M&M's man or anything like that. <laughs> um, technical. He, he made sure that nothing went wrong. And so he wanted, he said exactly which mic he wanted. It was always a wireless mic. I mean, he took it with him anyway. But in the rider was, was a provision for everything he took going wrong and having to have a backup. So when he arrived, everything we took was doubled up. Not, not in China, but everywhere else. And the rider really was about technical things. He wasn't that concerned about, you know, what, what drink or food was there. Um, there were things in there. There were standards. He didn't really check up on that. But the, the technical stuff had to be perfect. And we had great tour managers, so that was an essential thing. He was a total perfectionist. If anything, if anything went wrong on stage, he knew. I mean, any good manager knows this. You know, the manager gets all the complaints that things go wrong, but the fact is, it's the artist who's up there on stage, and if something goes wrong, he's the one who makes a fool of himself or lets himself down in front of the audience. Um, so George is utterly meticulous about that. And with the decisions, too. He was a tyrant with the musicians as well as being incredibly kind and generous. Uh, they couldn't be, get things wrong. If one of them played wrong notes and there wasn't a terribly sorry, or oh, that's all right, it was like not all right. And if you do it again tomorrow, you'll never be seen again. <laughs> um, it was all technical. 
Wow, that's very unique and unusual to hear that you didn't want all the the eccentric things and items that some of these superstars want. He did. And, the, and the technical part makes sense. You know, that helps you to sound great. That makes so much sense. So, okay, next project that, that you're working on that you can tell us about or, or what? Uh, I, I'm always working. I'm basically making films more than managing artists. Um, and I've got three or four films in the pipeline. The problem with filmmaking is a long process. Mm-hmm. So to be making a film at any one time, you need about 10 others in the, in the pipeline. So that is going on, several films on several different subjects. Um, artists, I, I, it's impossible not to get involved with artists when you've done it all your life. There's a wonderful artist I'm working with in the UK at the moment. Um, it was a fantastic singer, but... I don't really manage her. That's too full time. Her mum manages her, actually. Oh. I, I, perhaps I manage her mum or, or coach her mum in managing. Okay. Um, and, and we have the recording rights to her. And she, she's an amazing singer, Tori McHugh. Um, but, and I'm writing books. As you know, I've written five books. Yes. And I've just started on another book. And a book is a lot of work. I mean, it's yes. probably a thousand hours work over a year, which is, to most people, pretty much a full-time job. And I could throw that in as an extra for three hours of the day, three hours directly, and take uh, a bit of a waste of time at my age. So that's the matter. Well, you are obviously living in a very beautiful part of the world, and uh, so you and Andrew can meet up and ride those bikes. You guys really know how to live. And again, <laughs> this film is the real George Michael, and I've been talking with you, sir. Simon Napier Bell. Thank you so much for just giving me some more, and all of us, some more insight as to what it's been like working with the late, great George Michael. He is so missed, but his body of music will live forever. So thank you for this film. We really appreciate it as his man. Janet, it's been an absolute pleasure. Lovely to talk to him. I love making somebody who's such a big fan. Yeah, I'm a fan. And, and, you know, you know the, the drill. Journalists are not supposed to act like fans. Well, I'm tacky. I act, if I'm a fan, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. <laughs> you know, Janice, when we started making the film, there were several people in the film crew and in the editing post-production crew who were not George Michael fans. But they, they didn't like him. They just have never really listened. They uh-huh. didn't really know about him. And he sort of passed them by. And by the end of the film, everyone was a total avid George Michael fan. Uh-huh. Not just the music, just mm-hmm. the person, the personality. Everything you were talking about, um, he won every single one of them over posthumously. I mean, you know, by making the film. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. How could you not? Again, I could you not? So I look forward to hopefully chatting with you next film or next book, whichever comes first, or if it's both, we'll just talk twice as long. How about that? <laughs> That'll be lovely. As soon as my next book comes out, I'll be on the phone to you. Please do. And I will gladly accept your calls. So anyway, have a great rest of the, uh, well, weekend. We're at weekend mode here. And uh, hopefully talk to you again maybe in a year or so, or maybe less. Okay. Thanks, Janet. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com.